Hello, and welcome to another edition of Brussels Sprouts. I'm Andrea Kendall-Taylor. And I'm Jim Townsend. And we're so glad you can join us. We thought we would take an episode to reflect back on uh, 2021. If we all think back at the start of 2021, there were very high hopes for the future of the transatlantic relationship under the Biden administration. Uh, Described by some as the most committed transatlantic president in decades, Biden was expected to restore America's key alliances in Europe that had largely frayed under the leadership of former President Donald Trump. Yet one year later, the results, I think, have been mixed. Um, And while Biden quickly took steps to engage with Europe early in the year, including his high-profile trip in June, during which he claimed America was back, he shortly thereafter drew heavy criticism from European allies on contentious issues such as Afghanistan and the AUKUS submarine deal. Uh, and But now I would say, as the United States and Europe face the specter of a Russian invasion in Ukraine, there has been tremendous coordination and consultation with allies. We had the G7, NATO, and EU statements, I think, signaling a fairly unified approach to the challenge. So a lot to talk about and unpack. Um, one year in, questions about how we should evaluate the transatlantic relationship. And so When we had these questions, um, we wanted to bring in our biggest brains, our most thoughtful transatlantic analysts. Um, So we have today with us none other than Corey Shockey and Steve Erlanger. Welcome to you both. Thanks. By way of very brief background, uh, Corey is Senior Fellow and the Director of Foreign and Defense Policy Studies at the American Enterprise Institute. She previously served as the Deputy Director General of the International Institute for Strategic Studies in London, as well as in various positions in the U.S. government. And Steve is the Chief Diplomatic Correspondent for the New York Times. He's a two-time Pulitzer Prize recipient. He previously served as the Times Bureau Chief in seven countries, uh, including posts in London, Paris, Moscow, and Berlin. Okay. So maybe if we just, I'm going to throw out a really big, broad question, and I'm going to let you both take it um, in any direction that you want. But when you sit back and reflect and look back at the past year, uh, what do you think it meant for transatlantic relations? Uh, Do you think we are stronger than we were a year ago, more divided, not a lot of change? Um, Just so where do you think we are? And you know, is there anything that is a surprise? Is this what you expected one year into the Biden administration? So Steve, maybe we we can start with you and then over to Corey. Okay, we should call this the Brussels mushroom because it's so wet and here that everything's sprouting mold rather than sprouts. Um, It's been a very complicated year. Is that a metaphor, Steve? Are you starting this answer with a metaphor? Kill that metaphor. I don't mean it to be an analogy to the transatlantic relationship, but um, it I would say it's recuperating. I wouldn't say it's much better than that. Um, and it's not just Trump, though Trump was kind of a bizarre wake-up call. He was like a child that wanted to break every toy that was ever put in front of him, including the NATO alliance. Um, but... Um, there is still this kind of overhang from Obama. I mean, even when we think of not just Syria and Libya, but even Ukraine now, when we're thinking about the Minsk agreement, I mean, Minsk 
was run by the Europeans because Obama didn't want to do it, right? I mean, it, it was another Obama retreat from European security involvement. Now, that changed after a while, but there's, there is an overhang. So, yes, the Biden people have worked very hard to you know, say, look, we're the good guys and we're your friends and we take you seriously and we care about you and so on. But a lot of people felt, you know, that doesn't work so well with a foreign policy for the American middle class. And some people joked that America's back means America's back home rather than abroad. Now, there was also obviously in Europe, concern, which continues, about um, the shift to China. It's not like anyone doesn't understand why that's important. But when you look at problems like Ukraine, I think this is part of Putin's questioning too, is, you know, how deeply does the United States want to get engaged or re-engaged in European security? They'd wish the Europeans would handle it. The Europeans are not ready to handle it. And then the last thing I'd say, you know, they've done a lot of good work on trade. They, they've tried to repair things, but there is still a kind of worry that, I mean, it's not really nice to put it this way, but that Biden is an old guy and they don't know how long he can concentrate on things. They don't really know what kind of president he's going to be in a crisis, to be honest. Um, and there is a feeling that um, the NSC isn't functioning wonderfully well, to be honest. Um, so there, you know, there's a sense, yes, but there's also anxiety about uh, loss in the midterms and, and credibility and also um, still questions about what kind of president Biden is. So I agree with almost all of Steve's assessment. The only place my judgment differs is on trade. I think this is actually a really big problem for the Biden administration because they because A, they're not good at economics, and B, they don't seem to have yet been able to square the circle between a foreign policy for the middle class, which evidently simply means trade protectionism to them. They've kept the Trump tariffs in place on almost everything. Um, and, their national security strategy is all tangled up because what Asians are actually asking for is uh, give us an economic and trade policy that allows us to reduce our reliance on China. And the Biden administration can't figure out how to do that. Um, and that's a really consequential problem not just in Europe, but globally. And it's evidently delaying the release of the national security strategy. So you get all sorts of things tangled up where we now have a global posture review in advance of a defense strategy, which in itself is likely to be an advance of a national security strategy. So it reinforces the concern America's European allies have 
about the competence of the Biden administration and also about how they are going to get the alignment that they claim to be representing. Well, just to, just to jump in, I, I have to say, uh, and I realize the Biden administration has only been one year in, and the, you know, there's the usual litany of problems, uh, such as the Senate not not uh, being very quick in terms of getting people on, you know, the Biden team on the ground, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I I would have to agree with what you all have said. I I would have expected more from a team that had been around for a while. Uh, this, these aren't people who are not, I'm um, talking about the whether it's the NSC staff or those around Biden. And Biden himself, I mean, these are folks that have, uh, this is not their first rodeo. Uh, and uh, and so they're making mistakes that seem uh, amateurish in a lot of ways, um, certainly in, in, in the first six, eight months. And I was just surprised at that. And we'll see if it sorts itself out. But but let me let me let me raise this up thirty thousand feet and ask you all about this just the trajectory the U.S. is on when it comes to dealing with transatlantic things, dealing with Europe, dealing with NATO. Um, you know, uh, there's there's certainly a case to be made that if you look at how the U.S. and our relations with Europe have evolved and changed over time. No matter who's been in the presidency, I mean, with Trump, uh, you know, Steve, as you said, you know, that was that was certainly a, um, a, a case in and of itself. But but this it seems that the trajectory we're on is not something that's that is um, going to result in stronger and closer transatlantic relations. It's not going to be a throwback to how things might have been under, uh, you know, George H. W. Bush or or at a, a golden age that whatever someone might have in mind in terms of the relationship with Europe, that we're on a trajectory that is that that is going to result in an increasing distance between the US and Europe, or at least an evolving relationship that's not going to be that close one that we might have felt had been in the past. Do you, what, what do you all see in terms of where we're going to be going um, in the, over the next just 10 years? So I'll jump on that one. Because um, I'm much more positive than you are, Jim. I am choosing to believe that the trajectory that Andrea outlined, where the Biden administration handled terribly the, uh, the consultations on the AUKUS agreement, the agreement's terrific, uh, but the diplomatic handling of it, disastrous. Um, the disaster of Afghanistan's abandonment over the objections of virtually every NATO ally, the Biden administration's um, persistence in believing that they should over all allied objections uh, change uh, the declaratory policy of nuclear weapons for the United States unilaterally. Those are all pretty serious uh, problems, failures to understand allied positions and failures to allow those positions to influence American policy. But I choose to be optimistic that the elegant orchestration of Russia policy by the Biden administration, which I think has done quite well on the threats of violence, continued violence against Crimea by Russia. Um, the early sharing of intelligence, 
the uh, quiet trips to Moscow, the organization of allied consensus before a Russian attack happened. I think all of those things are, are really good work by the administration. And I am hoping that it indicates that they learn from these prior failures. But I should point out, they haven't yet let go of the desire to you know, argue that the only use of nuclear weapon or whatever it is that's uh, the, the formulation they're playing around with now and that uh, NATO allies are so anxious will damage extended deterrence. So well, I'm, I'm glad you got to I the think optimistic they're getting better, part. But we have one data point. <laughs> That's right. No, I mean, I agree with you, Corey, about how hard they've worked on Ukraine, Russia, pulling it all together. I do worry that in the calibrating of reactions to different Russian actions, it's going to be harder to coordinate. I mean, like, when do you put certain things on the table? Uh, you know, when you just grab Mariupol, or, I mean, it doesn't have to be a blitzkrieg, right? So, so we'll see what happens. Um, and already you have the EU grumpily, I mean, Josep Borrell, the EU foreign policy chief, who's, I think, a fairly weak one, as, as most of them have been since Solana, almost inevitably, given the divisions inside Europe, actually went to the Donbass yesterday, you know, which was good, but in a way it felt like a cry for attention. And it also seemed to me to raise the stakes a little higher than maybe we wanted them raised. And then he also had this horrible line in a press conference there. He said, we don't want to be back in Yalta. And of course, that will give you an indication of there are worries still about what the French used to call the U.S.-Soviet condominium, defining European security. And, and there is this feeling that, you know, the theater we're talking about is Europe, but Europe as qua Europe isn't at the table. I mean, NATO's at the table, to be sure. But um, so... There's a lot of, you know, and then with Macron taking over the EU presidency and the new German government taking over the um, G7, it's an interesting moment for how Europe views its its um, role and, and how seriously the Biden people are actually going to take European views. I mean, it's one thing to listen. It's another thing to actually take on board what's being said. I think that was the Afghan problem. I think Steve's point is hugely important. The test of, of um, allied consensus isn't do allies uh, adopt what we want done, but the proof of it is whether we actually are willing to change our policies to accommodate allied concerns. And there's not a lot of evidence of it in the Biden administration so far. Yeah. I mean, it is an interesting point. I mean, I think I probably hew closer to where Corey is on some optimism for where the transatlantic relationship is, especially if you kind of look back post-AUKUS. The, the, the trajectory seems to be in the right way. But I wonder if that's in large part because of the Russians themselves. I mean, we on our team have talked a lot about the state of the transatlantic relationship relying 
on a shared sense of threat. And prior to this, you know, we in 2014, there was a revigorating moment and it was it focused the minds and breathed new life into NATO. But since after you know that we kind of were adrift after that, and the United States increasingly focused on China, some of the European Union more focused on threats from the South, like that, that we were all, that we didn't share a common threat perception. And so clearly, again, with the Russian moves, it has helped focus and revitalize some of the, the coordination, collaboration, and, and, and all of that. So, but I, but I, I want to step back just to the, and Steve, did you want to jump in? Well, I mean, I, I, I was just going to say, I mean, it was MH17 shoot down as much as Crimea that woke Europeans up. And it is certainly true that, you know, when you read what the two documents Ryabkov has put forward, I mean, they basically say NATO should commit suicide yeah. and um, and the EU should, you know, have 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 no defense role. And Sweden and Finland should never join NATO, which has created a big fuss, particularly in Finland. And I, I think what'll be interesting to see is whether this puts a, a needle in the French bubble about the strategic compass, right? Because the, one of the things the Finnish president talked about was basically how the EU is useless on this issue. Um, he didn't put it quite that bluntly. But I think it, it is intriguing. But I mean, there, there's no question the threat uh, is real. Um, someone said to me today, the fox is loose and the hens are all running around. And the hens are the Europeans and the Americans and everybody's running around. And they're, not, they're trying to figure out what to do about the fox. Um, and so it does, as they say, concentrate the mind. So, but just to so just to go back to the AUKUS and Afghanistan piece of this, I mean that was obviously such an important part of last year, uh, an important time in the transatlantic relationship. And I think in the wake of that, there were a lot of at the time very legitimate concerns about what it means for the transatlantic relationship. Corey, you said something about it demonstrated how the ally or that the U.S. and Washington and the NSC failed to understand allied interests or concerns. Um, I would almost say it, it, it was a conscious choice to deprioritize those interests and concerns in favor of moving forward with what they felt that they needed to do in the Indo-Pacific. So almost less of a, not that it was an, a misunderstanding, but a conscious decision. So I, I actually don't agree with that, no. Andrea, because um, you're giving them more credit than they deserve, right? So um, the president appeared to be surprised by the French reaction on AUKUS and surprised by the idea that the Secretary of State hadn't been engaging with his French counterparts on this. And the National Security Advisor was nowhere to be seen that the, you know, that the Asia lead was subsequently blamed for not making sure that there was an outcome that was possible to, that Kurt Campbell was left solely in charge of this and nobody else thought, hey, the French might have some concerns about this. Might it be possible to get a submarine deal that doesn't insult the French? 
is it really true that the Australians are responsible for America's relationship with France and we can blame them for the fact that France was surprised? Like that's all just elementary school stuff. Um, and the Biden administration could have achieved the positive statement of greater cooperation, deeper defense cooperation and defense of our Asian allies without incurring that cost. And to suggest that, hey, you know, alienating Europeans is important for us uh, consolidating Asia, if that was their actual logic, it's a bigger problem than I'm even claiming. Yeah, I mean, I I agree with that, though I do know that Blinken wanted to tell the French and he was overruled because the theory at the White House was if you tell the French early, they're going to try to screw it up anyway. And it's maybe the Australians should have told them. But I think there was a deliberate decision to betray the French. That is for sure. Um, and and with all the consequences, Corey Corey mentions, and then you know, Afghanistan lingers. I I have to say, I've done a lot of reporting around that, at least in terms of European responses. And it's not like NATO wasn't consulted. NATO certainly was consulted. NATO wanted a conditional withdrawal. It all it always did. And actually, Biden was presented the option of a conditional withdrawal after those consultations. But the way it's described to me, rightly or wrongly, is the Taliban insisted on the Trump deadline of of uh, May, and they didn't want to risk the forces. So they were going to have a they were going to pull out anyway. And so NATO's desires were overruled. But to me, what's shocking, you know, the question of competence. I mean, these were supposed to be the um the competent people, they really did think the government would last six months, right? And it is shocking that it fell the way it fell and yeah. that we weren't prepared for, for it. it. It wasn't even an option, obviously, in their heads. And there's a lot of allied anger about this. A lot of allies thought they would have time to get people out on commercial planes, et cetera. There's really still a, quite a lot of lingering anger over the incompetence of how it was done. Now, whether you think the Pentagon rolled the White House on, on the rapidity of, of um, troop withdrawal or not, you know, I'm not sure, but um, it's the incompetence of the withdrawal that lingers more than the sense that they weren't consulted. On those two points, and then we can move on from Afghanistan and AUKUS. It was obviously, it was a, a, a big moment in the transatlantic community, a lot of concern. In retrospect, in hindsight, is it as significant as we thought it was at the time? Um, was, there some, is, was there something different about those episodes in the transatlantic relationship? Or is, it, is this really just parts of the ups and downs and the bumps and the bruises that are always inherent in the alliance? Or was, was, it, was it more than that, do you think? I, I, it's a good question, Andrea, um, because I, I worry that in general, we tend to mythologize the past of the alliance. Um, 
And I do think that the mistakes the Biden administration made over Afghanistan are within the range of mistakes allies make and recover from. But what makes me think it might be slightly more than that, than the norm, um, are two things. First, the grandiosity of the Biden administration's claims about America being back, right? It's weird that the president of the United States took a valedictory trip to Europe with no actual policy substance to the visit, just wanted an acknowledgement that, gosh, we're awesome, without a vision for where we're going, without here are things we need to achieve together. It was just validation. And first of all, that's a self-indulgence that great powers should be, should be better than. Um, but second of all, it served to unnerve allies that the US was doing what the EU typically does, which is wanting credit in the present for things it's going to do better in the future. That's not reassuring. Uh, the second uh, reason I think the Afghanistan um, disgrace might matter more is because there's a much higher baseline of allied anxiety now. It feels to me similar to the level of allied anxiety after the Suez crisis in 56, a real concern about American commitment and reliability. And that makes the small mistakes take on outsized importance. So I don't think it's unrecoverable. I don't think absent those two factors, it would be one sigma or more outside the, the norm. I think Corey's, as ever, I always think of something I think of as Corey's famous dictum, which is that those Europeans, God, we wish we had better allies. And the Europeans think, oh, those Americans, we wish we had better allies, but we don't, we have each other. That's that's the Corey Shockey dictum. And I think it's I wonderful. I curtsy my thanks that you are um, gifting me with that. <laughs> well, you deserve it. Um, but I think the anxiety about competence lingers. That's absolutely true. And it's particularly acute at this moment when, as we know, we're also celebrating a year when our country seemed to be falling apart on television at, at the Capitol when a third of Americans still believe the election was stolen. These anxieties about the health of American democracy are seen abroad and they're real. It's like the hyperpower, you know, we don't like too much American leadership. We don't like too little American leadership, but what scares us is a superpower that isn't functioning. And with the blockage in, in Congress and what's going on with the courts and worries about democracy, that's the underlying anxiety that, that this is our leader, but our leader isn't working. And with a president who's, who's old and, and may not 
you know, get reelected. So how much do you commit? And in the meantime, you have clearly a Russian president who's 69. So, I mean, he's seeing the end, even if it isn't the end, who sees this as a moment to test, to test Biden, test the EU, to test Germany, to test Ukraine. And, and this I find really, really fascinating. What I keep wondering, I mean, it's just speculation, but four months ago, there was this great summit in Geneva, the Biden-Putin summit, which was supposed to go so well. And four months later, we're here. So what did Putin see or not see? I mean, sometimes I think of the famous Kennedy-Khrushchev summit in Vienna, I think, when Khrushchev decided Kennedy was a boy and wasn't going to stand up to him and turned out mostly to be wrong. And I, I just wonder, you know, I mean, this is may, maybe a cruel sp speculation, but Putin is, is kind of rolling the dice in a big way here. And it is a major test. Jim is right. I mean, this is a questioning of the European security order as it's been not just since Helsinki, right, but really since the end of World War II, and Russia wants to overturn it, and, and, and it's very, very dicey. I think the Kennedy-Vienna summit parallel is a really strong one, Steve. I, I, I'm sorry to hear that. <laughs> I, I agree. Uh, Corey, keep, keep going. Pull on that thread. Tell us, tell us why. Uh, because, uh, because up so the 61 Vienna summit is the first meeting between newly elected president, John F. Kennedy and Nikita Khrushchev, his Soviet counterpart. And Khrushchev uh, issues a memorandum, a threat to the integrity of West Berlin. In interestingly, it's verbatim the exact same memorandum that was given to Dwight Eisenhower by Nikita Khrushchev. And Eisenhower's response was, if you want a war over Berlin, we'll give it to you. And he could pull that off because he had run the allied war in Europe. Kennedy probably couldn't have pulled that off. And Kennedy's response to receiving the memorandum was to dramatically ramp up U.S. defense spending, to, uh, to double down on producing credibility. And it ended up with the Berlin Wall being constructed to prevent East Germans from fleeing to the West. But so one, one conclusion you can draw from that analogy is Kennedy understood he lacked credibility and put policies in motion to, to demonstrate to Khrushchev unequivocally that America had the strength and had the allied uh, consensus to protect Berlin. A second lesson you can draw is that Kennedy dramatically overreacted and perhaps even precipitated the building of the Berlin Wall um, by, by the policy choices that he made. A third possible conclusion you can draw from it is that Kennedy misunderstood what was happening, right? That this wasn't a threat to West Berlin, that, that, 
The Kennedy administration thought the challenge, the risk of war with the Soviet Union was the nature of this challenge. The Eisenhower administration thought they were playing for Germany's anchoring in the West, that what the Soviets were after was, was prizing Germany away from the West and into neutral ground. And I do think that may be part of what Vladimir Putin's playing for, which is an attempt to break Germany off from the West, a new German government, uh, a diverse German government that's struggling to get a common policy, and that our choices may actually precipitate a more neutral Germany. So the Nord Stream 2 stuff, we need a policy that's actually going to anchor Germany in the West. Wow. Uh, Corey, uh, <laughs> that's, that's fabulous. Uh, I, let me, I'm not even going to ask a question. I want to turn to Steve. Steve, what, what went through your mind hearing what Corey just laid out? Well, I'm always fascinated, but I think Germany is still pretty anchored in the West, right? I mean, it's part of the German DNA, NATO. German isn't going to be an outlier at the moment. Um, the Schultz is a bit of an unknown quality. I mean, he's an SPD guy, right? The SPD did Ostpolitik and Willy Brandt and so on and so on, right? Um, but he is, in a way, though he's leading a government, he's almost outvoted by his coalition partners, the Greens, who are very, very tough on Russia and on China. And even the FDP, which isn't Genscher's FDP. I mean, this is an FDP whose leader is tweeting every week about Navalny. So you have a stronger kind of worry about Russia part in that coalition. I think Nord Stream 2 is a big question, but nothing's going to happen for six months anyway. They've kind of held off certification. Um, and Europe's going to buy Russian gas no matter how it comes, right? Let's be honest about this. I've never understood quite the fuss about Nord Stream 2 because the money goes to the Kremlin, whether the gas comes from Ukraine or through Ukraine or through somewhere else, but it's still Russian gas. And it's going to be many years before that changes. So Europe can respond with sanctions, with financial sanctions. I don't think energy, maybe oil sanctions, but not gas sanctions. I think Germany, because it's new, will hold the line. I mean, I think what I would think part, I mean, who knows what Putin really wants, but part of what Putin sees, and he's not entirely wrong to see it, is the West is trying to pull Ukraine out of his sphere of influence. I mean, we, that's what we've been doing. Now, to some degree, he's been helping, right? Because he's been creating in Ukraine a lot of anti-Russian feeling over Crimea and Donbass and so on. Um, and it, it wouldn't terribly shock me if he bit off some more Russian-speaking part of, of um, Ukraine and a land bridge to Crimea and stops, right? But then, you know, what's the calibration of Western responses then? Um, but for him to try to say, well, you, you know, it's our sphere of influence and anything bordering us has to be neutral is absurd, but it is possible, I hope, 
I hope that out of this these discussions come things we can talk about like intermediate range missiles and land-based nuclear weapons in in Europe and things that will get the Russians into what I suppose I hope he really wants, which is a serious talk about European security, um, even if it doesn't go anywhere. Yeah, really good points. Maybe just one quick reaction to, I don't think we're at risk of overreacting. So the one lesson from your kind of analogy there. You know, I think the United States, Washington has been really careful to calibrate its response, right? So we we have done things to try to keep the temperature down. We haven't put out our counter proposal to the Russian proposals. We've reinforced this idea of reciprocity and that we'll articulate our concerns with Russian behavior, but they haven't done it in public. They've said they would support Ukrainian forces and their ability to defend themselves, but it's been very focused on defensive weapons. So I feel like at this juncture, there's been a lot of effort to keep the temperature down um, and, and not over respond. I think when the rubber meets the road, again, the, the, the risk is that there's not, we are not able to marshal a significant and coordinated enough response. I think Steve's point about the Russians doing something at the lower end of the spectrum and Europe breathing a collective sigh of relief that they've dodged a bullet and that Russia didn't go further is a really significant risk. And I think that's where the German piece really comes in is what, what, what will Berlin be willing to do even if it's something at the quote unquote lower end of the spectrum? How will we be able to actually marshal a response that's strong enough to put an end to the cycle that started in Georgia and has continued since? So I think we're not at a risk of, of underreacting. But your, the other point that you made too, Corey, that is really interesting is on the credibility issue with President right. Biden. I was going to raise that. Afghanistan is part of it. But I also think Putin sees in Biden and in this administration, again, an administration that wants to focus on China and might be willing to have go further in discussions in order to put an end to this than, than maybe other administrations might. So I, I do, the credibility thing I think is a really important dynamic in this. Just to, just to jump on that credibility bit, I, I, I agree so much about that. And I, you know, it's, it goes back to, uh, Steve, you were talking about the uh, mistakes made in the Obama administration. Well, many of the people who contributed to those, those errors, if you will, are, are back in government now. And I, and again, I, I don't want to slam them. I know them and their friends and uh, good colleagues, but um, but you know, it's it's this 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 credibility thing seems to be. We seem to not be able to shake it, uh, and so I think um, you know Kennedy had new people around him, new people who would come into government. Kennedy himself. So there's a credibility problem that comes with uh, having never done something before and trying to get your sea legs. But to have the credibility problem coming from folks who have been there and done that, I again, I just, I'm very disappointed in seeing that. And I think Putin certainly is trying to take advantage of it. And also, you know, I mean, to be fair, it's a different Russia now. I mean, it's a much better equipped Russia. Right. It's a Russia that's driven out domestic dissent as much as possible. I mean, it's a much more kind of dictatorial Russia with a you know quite a good army now or so we think i mean it's an army that you know has sergeants that can give orders and has new equipment and it, it's not the old sad sack you know brezhnev area 
era army. So I think we need to understand that. And I think we also need, though it's very hard to do, and again, this is my personal view, but I mean, I said Putin, I mean, he, even if he's healthy, which he probably is, he's still 69, right? So he sees the last chapter, even if he doesn't like it. And doing something about the biggest stain on his reputation, which is the loss of loss of um, Ukraine, um, may matter to him. Um, it may matter to him more than a few more sanctions. Um, and and that's part of what interests me. And it doesn't help that Zelensky keeps going after people like Poroshenko. I mean, it, it's it's I mean, internal Ukraine things are very complicated. But um, I really do see this as it's it's a test, um, and that it's kind of like there's a Bolshevik maximalist position, but there's also a minimum position. There's always a Plan B. And I'm not sure we know what the plan B is yet. That's that's what's interesting. But there is one, I'm sure. I think Steve's point is a really powerful one that, that Putin might be willing to bear, might even welcome further ostracism in return for dragging Ukraine or at least part of Ukraine back into Russia's orbit. Yeah. Um, that, uh, you know, the... The challenge for an authoritarian is that you can't actually retire. You're not safe if you actually retire. As Nazarbayev has highlighted for us, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and so maybe Putin's lion in winter routine will lead him to a greater desire to, to run risks. Okay, I know we're getting towards the end of time. Um, maybe just a final question. You're building on Steve's point about being tested. So, you know, we'll, we will be tested with Russia's troop buildup on the Ukrainian border, kind of figuring out. You, you, we will be tested on either path. If we are able to go down a diplomatic path, keeping allies on side, mounting and marshalling cohesion, if we are talking about arms control issues, that will be that will be a test for the allies. Certainly a test if Russia escalates and we have to figure out how to respond will be a test. What other tests do you anticipate coming in in 2022, I mean, we didn't we talked a little bit about China, not a lot, um, but what other things might you be looking at? Things strains on the relationship, things that could give it momentum. It's hard question. It's hard to <laughs> to see out into the future and know what's coming. But from what we can see at the moment, what what are you going to be looking at? Well, I think uh, one strain I. Uh, former EU Trade Secretary Malmstrom has a terrific piece out at the Peterson Institute about what the EU should be doing on trade and a, a much more assertive EU trade agenda joining the what was the Trans-Pacific Trade Partnership, working with countries in the Western Hemisphere on trade agreements that will put friction in the relationship unless the Biden administration is able to actually figure out what they mean by foreign policy for the middle class and to make it appealing beyond protectionism. Uh, 
Yeah. And we didn't mention tech, tech policy. I mean, all of these kind of outstanding irritants in the relationship that are still there. I think tech policy is decreasingly a friction. Americans are coming to greater appreciation of the European position on privacy and tech regulation. Um, and, and so I think that's not as big a friction as it once was. I think the single greatest achievement of the Biden administration is the Secretary of the Treasury delivering a global minimum income tax, um, a global minimum tax. I think that's the great unsung victory of, and will also decrease tensions in the transatlantic sphere. Uh, I, I do think this question of Germany's role in the world is gonna loom really large. I think one of the most interesting tests of it is going to be as Germans realize that Volkswagen and other German companies are major investors in a province of China that has a million Uyghur and re-education camps. If Germans shrug at that, I do think it, Germany's role in the world is gonna be a big question. I personally don't think they will. I, I actually think that, you know, Germany's foreign minister is closer to the center of gravity, but, but Germany making a decision about whether their prosperity is compatible with their values um, in their foreign engagement is gonna be a big question. And I think likely to be one of a lot of transatlantic friction. And I would even build on that because it's not just the values, it's can the German export model keep functioning when it's so behind on questions of digitalization, right? I mean, there's no big German digital tech company. They, they, they just don't exist. And without the German motor, where does Europe go? Because I mean, really, Germany spreads money and stability everywhere, particularly in Central and Eastern Europe. So I do worry about Germany for that reason also. Um, and obviously, you know, one has to worry about certain things like some new terrible COVID variant that, that we don't see yet. Um, and um, I do think there's going to be increasing popular pressure on climate, which will come right up against the thing nobody really, really, really grasps, I certainly don't, is how expensive it's going to be to change our lives, right? Yeah. I mean, just to replace every gas burner in the world, are you kidding me? I mean, with what and how? I mean, it's, it's, it's almost unthinkable how complicated and expensive this is really likely to be and how we convince India and China to do it and do it more quickly and do it more willingly um, is I think a big, big issue. And then of course, China, I mean, you know, I, uh, I'm not a sinologist, but um, Xi Jinping, um, his control of China seems quite strong right now, but you never know. I mean, things crack very quickly. I mean, it's, it's um, like Hemingway said about bankruptcy, it starts gradually and then suddenly. Um, and 
you know, you don't know. There's a defensive nationalism in China, which, you, you know, works in a way, but the whole world is woken up to some of the dangers. Um, and those could become much more visible. Um, so I do worry about those things, but in general, I mean, I try to be optimistic. I think in, in a way the virus has brought a lot of people together rather than apart. Um, I think we're doing a bit better about COVAX, about, the, about delivering vaccines to poorer countries. India's done, um, done very, very well. Um, and so I try to think about um, the wonders that science brought. Can you imagine a world with no vaccines right now? It's terrifying. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely terrifying. So I try to think about those things. Um, well, we as, always as love- I, As I always say to people, think positive, but stay negative. <laughs> <laughs> you, we almost ended on a positive note, Steve. I should, have, I should have talked more loudly over you. We always love when we can end on a positive note. We should. We're bringing in a new year, 2022. Uh, we hope it's better than 2021. Um, but thank you for joining us. Clearly, this conversation delivered on exactly what we- uh, we're hoping for. So thank you for doing it. And um, maybe we'll touch base later in the year and, and see how, how we're doing. We'd love to have you back. Yep. Thank you so much. Thank you all. Happy New Year to everybody. Happy New Year. <laughs>